Today's episode is brought to you by Fretboard Biology, the comprehensive online guitar course put together by Joe Elliott. Now, Joe is not only a fantastic guitar player, he draws on his years of experience as the ex-head of guitar at the Guitar Institute of Technology and also at the McNally Smith Music College. Here's a few words from Joe about the course. If you're tired of wading through hundreds of random guitar videos and just want to become a better player, Fretboard Biology is your answer. Fretboard Biology is a self-paced, college-level program that will give you the right instruction, in the right amounts, and in the right order. You'll learn the same information I taught to thousands of other guitar players over 30 years of teaching in top music colleges. If you want to make real progress with your guitar playing, then sign up for a free 7-day trial at fretboardbiology.com. Hi there, you are listening to the Guitar Speak podcast. My name is Matt Wakeling and this is the show that I produce in Sydney, Australia. Since 2016, I've been interviewing amazing guitarists and guitar people from all around the world. The podcast is also home to the iconic Roundtable series, but today I am in interview mode and I'm speaking to the amazing Tim Shaw from Bender. Now, Tim has been working with Fender since 96. Before that, he spent a lot of time with Gibson and the Heritage Guitar Companies, and he's really known as a pickup guru. His actual title is pretty awesome. Check this out. The Chief Engineer of Guitars at Fender's R&D Innovations Department. Now, today, Tim joins us to talk about a really exciting project. In fact, he describes it as a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and that was reviving and reinventing Fender's Kniffy pickups. Now, Kniffy is a very rare alloy. Tim will explain more about that, but it was used in the wide range humbuckers of the late 70s, early 80s. And that was a pickup designed by Seth Lover when he was working at Fender in the 70s. Seth Lover himself also worked at Gibson in the early days. In fact, he is known as the father of the humbucker. So there's a lot of cool history in this episode and some really exciting developments and use of that technology. Hey, so let's jump straight in to the conversation. Tim Shaw, welcome to the Guitar Speak podcast. I'm delighted to be here. Well, we're delighted to have you. You are a pickup guru and uh, that that term is aptly uh, given, I believe you've been with Fender over 25 years, decades of experience before that as well. So I'm super excited to speak with you. I was very fortunate to be on a media roundtable a couple of weeks ago when you were talking about Fender's new Cuniffy and Cobalt Chrome pickups. So uh, very, very excited to have the chance to talk to you today. Can I, can I start, Tim? Could you tell us the story, the original story behind Seth Lover coming to Fender and bringing humbuckers to Fender and in particular the wide range humbucker? Right. So Seth Whit Gibson went to work for Fender, and probably pretty shortly thereafter, they said, Seth, humbucking pickups. You know how to make these. Why don't you make one for us? And I'm sure there was a kind of a pause uh, as he considered his words carefully, because he already had the patent for the Gibson construction of the pickup. Mm-hmm. It was still in force, and under patent law, he could not infringe himself. So in other words, he couldn't copy what he'd already done. Um. He also, I suspect, knew that um, since Fender pickups had magnets as pole pieces, he kind of wanted to get into that world 
of tonality because having a magnet as a pole piece is much different sonically than having iron as a pole piece. And he probably knew as an engineer um, that speedometers and tachometers had Kunafe magnets in them, and these magnets were actually threaded. They were adjustable. That's how you calibrated a speedometer or a tachometer. You turn that magnet in and out. So I think it was a perfect storm of needing something desperately that would work for Fender that wasn't part of his patent. And uh, he probably started by taking the original size Gibson coils, putting these magnets in them, winding up a sample, and realizing it absolutely didn't work. Kunafe's 60% copper, 20% nickel, 20% iron. The fact that it's got really, really little iron in it means to our ears uh, that it doesn't have a whole lot of base. These pickups, the coils are with magnets lower inductance than an equivalent alnico rod would be. So he realized he was going to have to put more wire on them, and um, he made the bobbins bigger. So that's how we got from the Gibson size humbucker to the wide range humbucker because he just basically needed to get more wire on it to get any low end out of it. Yeah. So that ends up seeing a bit more of the string as well, doesn't it? It does. It does because it's a wider section of the string. So these pickups really famously ended up in the Thin Line Deluxe and the Telecaster Custom, um, even the Starcaster for a little while. Starcasters. Yeah. Yep. So why, why did production stop on these? Well, most the biggest problem commercially used for it, at least in the Western world, was in um, speedometers and tachometers. Uh, I mean, it's also used in light bulbs. Incandescent light bulbs have a little piece of kunafe connecting the innards to the outards, oh, so okay. to speak, wow. because it expands and contracts at the same rate glass does. Yeah. You know, so there were a lot of under- industrial uses, but this big one was speedometers and tachometers. And in the late 70s, they were starting to go electronic. At a point, they were electronic. They were calibrated differently. You no longer needed that magnet. And the production lines that were set up to make this stuff had nothing to build. So by the late 70s, they just pretty much stopped making it in that size for that purpose. And at that point, the pickup went away. Interesting. And the guitars end up going away as well. Fender stopped production of those pretty soon after. Exactly, exactly. And they're gone for a while. And when they do come back, it's with a pickup that's more in the Gibson construction, but in the bigger cover. Okay, okay. So I guess just to backtrack a little bit, with the choice to go with Cuniffy, what sort of musical qualities does that bring? Okay, so Cuniffy is about as strong as Alnico 3. Okay. So it's, you know, not a very powerful magnet. Um, and because of that, it doesn't grab the string very hard. So if you have like um, like Alnico 5 magnets, you know, that are really close to the string, you might get kind of a wolf tone, but you also get a really, really quick attack. Um, if you use um, ceramic magnets and other pickups or Alnico 8, these really powerful grades, the rise time of the note, what we call the onset transient, is really quick. Kunafe is more like Alnico 3, so at that point, that onset transient is pretty gradual. So it's smooth, almost compressed sounding without really being compressed. But it's got this kind of a gentle sliding into the note rather than smacking you on the forehead with the note. So musically, it's a much different proposition. Also, uh, for whatever reason, it 
doesn't overdrive really hard. And when it does overdrive, in other words, if you crank up the game, use pedals with it, you don't get that really nasty bang you in the middle of the forehead at 2,500 hertz sound. So it's got a smooth attack. When you run it with pedals, it you know it'll still break up, um, but it doesn't break up like a lot of other stuff you've heard. And it seems to perform best with pickups that are not incredibly overwound. So for you, when when did the process start? When did you guys decide, hey, let's try and revive this type of pickup? Well, I've been thinking about it for a while. And in 2017, I started talking to our magnet supplier. The guy I work with is almost as old as me. I'll be 73 in August. And he's been in the magnet business 40 years. So, and his dad was in the magnet business before that. So he knew a lot of the history that maybe some younger folks didn't. Um, he knew what I was talking about. And we had a couple of good conversations and some hearty laughs. And uh, it was like, you know, you really want to do this? And I thought, well, I'd like to try. <laughs> and we talked about it over a few months uh-huh. and ended up deciding that with a, a, shall we say, judicious application of funding, um, that it might actually be possible to, to bring it back at a lab scale. So in other words, we went back, when you're making a material like this, it starts in a foundry. You're actually casting 10 kilo ingot, ingots, uh-huh. wow. which are then turning into rods and then you're heat treating them and turning them into screws. And it's a really laborious, multi-step process. And nobody had done it in close to 50 years. So the downside of that was nobody really remembered all the little tricks. So we ended up, after months and months, uh, I had a box of magnets that I could hold in the palm of my hand that were probably the most expensive magnets you know, maybe not, maybe not on the planet, but they were certainly really, really pricey. Sure. Uh, but it took, like I say, many months and a whole lot of money. And it was something that only a company like Fender could possibly have afforded. That's amazing. And is it a big job for you? You've got this crazy idea when you turn up to Fender, say, Hey, we want to, we want to give this a crack. This is going to take some research some development, some dollars. Um, I've known Justin Norvell ever since he and I started. We actually started the same year within a couple months of each other. Um, And we've taken different paths for the company. Uh, But he's always, A, been a friend, and B, been very supportive of crazy ideas. So because of his involvement, I was able to get buy-in at the executive level for this stuff. And uh, that meant we had the wherewithal to at least try it and see if it could be done. Because once we had a lab grade process, we thought, okay, now we can see perhaps a path to how okay. we can make more of them. In in the media roundtable that I mentioned, you spoke about having some of the original tooling still available. What what kind of stuff is still lying around, and and how did you use that stuff? We had the bobbins, um, which is actually a pretty big deal, um, and they were actually stored. Uh, the manufacturer of those bobbins. Um, basically had put the tools away in the late 70s and essentially forgotten about them. And uh, I happen to know that the particular bobbin is made out of nylon. Uh, and I happened through my, uh, shall we say, previous association with a large manufacturer in the music business. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I knew a man, you know, I knew a bobbin company um, 
that might actually have them. So we called them and said, hey, we know what the part number is. Um, you wouldn't by any chance have this tool, would you? And a couple of days later, the kid was like, well, yeah, we do, actually. No way. You know? <laughs> yeah. And we went, really? <laughs> and I said, yeah. Because in a lot of cases in America, I don't know how it is in Australia, but in a lot of cases in America, if you don't use a tool for a certain length of time, the company with whom it is stored can send you a, a, a registered letter or call it what you will, you know, in Australia. Point is, they can, an official communication that says, hey, you haven't used this. If you don't use it, you've got two options. You can either take it back or we're going to throw it away. You know, and they'll scrap it. Um, that didn't happen here. Oh, okay. They just forgot about it. And when we called them, it, so it cost us, I think, $1,700 US to get the tool degreased and ready to run again. Okay. So, you know, so we had that. We had a lot of the original drawings. Um, the CBS period at Fender um, has its faults, but um, there was a lot of drawing and a lot of records were kept if you knew where to find them. And uh, we had a database of a huge number of scanned drawings. So we uh, went on a quest there. You know, so we knew at that point a whole lot about the original dimensions and specifications for the parts. Even there's a weird magnetizing process. We had that documented. And a lot of this um, were drawings that Seth did. Because um, obviously when I was at Gibson, I'd seen his signature a lot. Yeah. You know, so just seeing all this stuff and seeing Seth's signature on it was just really, really cool for me. Yeah, I bet. I bet. When when you're a musician, you're learning a piece of music. You, you, you can sometimes feel you're getting into the head of the musician if you're learning a solo or something. Is, uh, are there any parallels in the pickup world? Oh, exactly. Exactly. I think part of the challenge um, in a lot of cases with historic designs, whether it's pickups or guitars for that matter, is trying to figure out what they meant. You know, it's like, you know, and this is a, a sidebar, but I think you'll understand it. We never hear guitars, vintage guitars, with the original string gauges that they did. Yeah, yeah through the original amps, mm -hmm. you know? So at this point, we think, I mean, we like what they sound like, but it doesn't mean that we are, you know, we can necessarily sit down with them the day they said, yeah, we're going to make some of these. Okay. Yeah. And go, okay, here's what we think we're doing. So uh, for me, kind of getting back to an original thing, you know, anytime I get to do that at any level as a designer, whether it's pickups or guitars or anything, I'm really stoked. I really enjoy that. That's amazing. Um, with that in mind, different amps, gate, string gauge, etc. Do you actually have any original wide range humbuckers lying around the factory that that you would A B against? Was that part of the process? Yeah, time? we had we had a few. You know, we had some examples, not tons. Okay. Um, and there were things we just kind of ended up with. Yeah. Um, you know, and I know some people who have had the guitars too. You know, so some guys can call in Nashville and say, okay. Bring it over. Let's listen. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, but it's not like there are tens of thousands of these around because it wasn't a hugely popular guitar when it was made. This episode is brought to you by Fretboard Biology, the comprehensive online guitar course put together by Joe Elliott, ex-head of guitar at the Guitar Institute of Technology and the McNally Smith College of Music. 
I was one of the beta testers for the course and can say as a music educator, I was really impressed by the logical sequence of learning. The course has also been endorsed by players such as Brett Garson and Greg Cup. For more details, check out the links in our show notes. So let's let's move on a little. I mean, the history story is is amazing. Um, obviously, you're trying to re uh, reproduce this this pickup, but you're also doing some new things with it too, and also the use of cobalt. Can you talk us through the current range that's just been launched? Right. So basically, and the current range we've got is not necessarily everything that there will be. I might also add that, um, but we had to start somewhere. Um, so I had to, obviously, I was going to start with the, you know, the, the most popular Fender stuff. We weren't exactly going to start with the electric 12 string and the bass five. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so, well, let's do those Codafan Marauder pickups. I know those are going to go well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we didn't, we didn't do that, <laughs> you know. So I started, uh, you know, kind of in the obvious places and started looking at strats and tellies initially and then ended up in the Fender world going to Jazzmasters. Um, there are some detours in there too, which we can talk about, you know, maybe in about a year, we'll discuss okay. some detours. Okay. Uh, but the challenge was basically, okay, what would Seth have done if he'd been left to his own devices and this stuff had continued to be available? And, uh, I had, you know, certain insights based on what I had to do when I brought it back and, uh, realized pretty quickly that it was a. This material does not go quietly in, in the sense of being an easy thing to design around. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some magnet materials and some kind of configurations where, I mean, I hate to say, you know, after you've made, a, you know, a few thousand of them, you're going, okay, well, I know how to do this. Yeah, sure. I didn't know how to do that. Uh-huh. So I have some pretty substantial junk boxes of things I didn't particularly care for. Uh and I had so few magnets when I was doing this that I was ripping the magnets back out of the pickups and using them again. Okay. okay. So it's just I have a whole lot of different size coil forms. The trick with strats and tellies, for instance, is that the form factor, the overall size of the part, is known. And unlike Seth and the wide range, I just can't go, hey, I want a, I want a slightly wider strat pickup. Yeah. Can we just, like, change them all? Mm-hmm. You know, telly bridge pickup in some senses was pretty easy because at least it was bigger. But the telling neck pickup was a challenge, and the strats were a challenge. So I ended up finally, and it took me probably a year and a half, and Justin used to use the term vexing, as I think this was probably vexing for you. Why, yes, it has been vexing for me. (laughs) Um, It was a kind way to put it. Uh, But I got a strat set that I liked and other folks liked as well. Uh, And we had a lot of people within Fender very quietly checking the stuff out and artists who were sworn to secrecy checking it out as well. Uh-huh. And the strats that we ended up with is one where I like a, a full but not muddy neck pickup. I like a bridge pickup, which is clean but not harsh. And I like a really kind of a musical middle pickup. When that's kind of the hard one sometimes in the set mm-hmm. is to find something that basically you want to play because a lot of people just ignore the middle pickup entirely. <clears throat> and with Strat, you had to get the quack right because the positions two and four didn't sound good. You know, it was game over with the Strat. Oh, yep, yep. The other thing I, or the next thing I'd worked on with the Telecaster, um, 
I realized that Cunefe does a lot of stuff, but it doesn't do everything. Some of that really smooth attack that we get in some circumstances for a Telecaster is not exactly something we want because a Telecaster has to have attitude. Mm, yeah. You know, the Telecaster basically has to kind of slam its glass down the bar and go, okay, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, you really don't want a Telecaster that goes, hi, I'm a Telecaster. Can we play? I'd like to be in your band. Can, can I plug into that big thing over there, please? <laughs> no, that's just, that's just not going to go. Absolutely. Uh, so as Cunefe was disappearing, engineers realized that there might still be uses for a magnet, which could be turned into a screw. And there was another alloy called iron chromium cobalt, uh, which was developed. It's more like Alnico 5 okay. in its properties. And uh, I had access to that as well. And for the Telecaster pickups, that was a much better choice. It had that quicker attack, um, quicker than quicker than Cunefe, not as fast and spiky as Alnico can sometimes be. Okay, yep. And it's still, you know, when it breaks up, it's still got a musicality that I found very, very attractive. You know, the problem was that iron chromium cobalt is not the easiest thing to say. You know, Alnico. Big strong round word. He retired from Alnico at the age of seventy. You know, Cunefe. We vacationed in Cunefe last year. It was wonderful. The beaches were great. You know, but Fakroko uh, just didn't work. It's like it sounds like you're saying something bad in the Balkan language. You know, in my country we say very not good. It's Fakroko. You know, so I gave up trying to pronounce it fast. Okay. And I knew that nobody at Fender was ever going to be able to remember what it was anyway. So I started calling it Cobalt Chrome, which, again, is not entirely accurate, but I like the way it sounded. Um, and we've kind of gone with that. So, you know, there's a bunch of alloys of that available. We ended up, you know, picking one that did what we wanted it to do. And uh, you can manipulate these things a little bit. So we have one which is exclusive to us. And... Um, <clears throat> That kind of got us off on the cobalt chrome pudding. Nice, nice. You've also got two different Jazzmaster pickups. Can you explain those those two series? Absolutely can. Uh, I've loved Jazzmasters since I was 14 years old. The first guy I ever jammed with had a 62 Jazzmaster. Nice. Um, and that big, huge Jazzmaster neck pickup, because he also put like 11s or 12s on it, so it sounded gigantic. Uh, it was just one of, one of my favorite sounds, and it has been forever. I've also got to hang out a little bit with Chris Stapleton in the past few years. So his neck pickup sound in particular is just burned into my skull. Uh -huh. So I knew exactly what I wanted the neck pickup to do. And uh, it ended up, you know, coming. I'm really happy with the way that pickup sounds. Also realized that if you overwind that neck pickup, it muds up pretty quickly. And the jazz master tonality goes away. So, and also all these sets, the number of wines on them is very carefully curated for a specific purpose. And in some cases, if you go past that, unpleasant things happen. Uh -huh. So, at any rate, that pickup or a version of it for the bridge didn't have the attack we needed. It was too mushy. And problem I have with jazz master pickups a lot of times is that the bridge pickup's a little hard sounding. 
So the trick with this uh, was to not use the, the cobalt, not use the Cunefe, but instead use the cobalt chrome for the bridge pickup. So that's a mixed set. It's Cunefe in the neck and cobalt chrome in the bridge. Uh, I like the musicality of it. And uh, it's got a really interesting middle pickup sound with a really very pleasant scoop in the mid-range and lots of spark in the end, top end rather. And it also overdrives really well with pedals. So that's the the single coil kind of jazz master. Exactly. Yep. Right. And the other one, I've got a lot of parts that live on my bench. And, uh, you know, when you're on a phone call or somebody else's Zoom call or something like that, maybe you're just playing with parts. And I realized that the two-coil assembly from the wide-range pickup slid perfectly into the Jazzmaster cover. And I went, okay, then. I guess we're going to do this one, too. So at that point, this is the set from the new American Vintage Tully Deluxe, except that now they're in Jazzmaster covers. And we've got the Jazzmaster geometry and tonality. So at this point, it's even fatter than a regular Jazzmaster is. Mm -hmm. But it also, when you overdrive it, it crunches really, really nicely. And there's a kind of a, a low mid-range or a chest voice, if you will, that's really very expressive. That's super cool. They look awesome, too. They've got the classic three-by-three three, uh, yeah, exactly. screws. So they, they hint at the, the, old, the old style, but uh, with the Jazzmaster vibe. Very cool. I've got to say, all the, the videos, I've watched all of them, the, the demos have come out. They sound amazing. I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm just repeating the, the blurb, but the, there's some weird thing going on. They're warm and very articulate, and there is that kind of hi-fi top end, but not nasty I, I yeah i don't know how that that works they're familiar yeah, voices think, but different i think you're doing really well with that i think one thing that and michael i love working with michael lemo he's just such an amazing player mm -hmm. uh so it was really fun for me in this thing because he hadn't played any of these guitars so it was really fun for me to just kind of watch him and see what he was doing with them you know because he was he was just off it's like when he played the Jazz Master, the single coil version of the Jazz Master. Uh -huh. He just kind of disappeared for a while. Yeah, right. You know, he just went, he just played and he just kind of played and then he played and, uh -huh. you know, just got, went, you know, went off around the corner somewhere. One thing that you can see that he does that you can pick up too is the pickup is really, really sensitive to right hand dynamics. Mm. So at this point, if you were a guy who can play or a person who can basically back off and hit harder, yeah. The pickup is perfectly happy to go there with you. So it's an expressive thing, and I think Michael was really, really showcasing that well. And I'm looking forward to you being able to play something just like reporting back. Yeah, sure. Because I think you'll see what I mean. But um, they do sound pretty cool, and after you hear a whole bunch of them, you'll realize that there is this kind of a family resemblance. You know, I've got, you know, in my office I have probably... 18 or 19 guitars with variations of this stuff on there okay yeah and um you know for those people who have sit down sat down and just kind of gone through the whole thing there is a similarity that you hear after a bit you know in a family resemblance it's actually really really cool and it's been really really fun to do what one pickup that's not in the current the current range but has just turned up is in the michael landau coma strat it's uh is that related in any way, that, that bridge pickup? It's voiced very, very similar to the neck pickup of the Tele Deluxe. Okay. You know, Michael asked for some specific things. 
and we've kind of dialed it in for him. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's it's part of the family. Gotcha. You mentioned there's a couple of more releases. There's uh, we're in the first release now, obviously. So a second and third release has been mentioned. Is there much you can say about that? Nope. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's let's be let's be fair about it. Um, yeah. You know, there are certain Fender instruments, um, some with longer necks and four strings. You know, which have not been shown now. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and. And one thing about that in general, though, and, and what should be said, is that while these things look generally like other pickups, um, and they're certainly the same size, all the innards are different. You know, the coil forms are different. Um, there's a lot of parts to these things that didn't exist before. And even for Fender, you simply can't do everything all at once. Mm-hmm. You know, so we've had this launch. Uh, I think. You know, in an upcoming phase, you may well see pickups uh, of different form factors that might go in different instruments. Curious. Let us just say that I'm, I've already done that homework, and I'm really looking forward to sharing that with everybody as well. Very cool. Very interesting. Well, I think there's enough to be excited about right now, but that gives us a little hint and uh, piques the interest to keep, uh, to keep watching this space. Can I? I've so enjoyed speaking with you today. I really appreciate your time. Can I ask you a final question? And it's without notice, so feel free to pass or play. But when we look at Seth Lover's career and and some of the places he's been and the directions, and do you feel any any parallels with his career? Well, I think um, I have tremendous respect for Seth. I didn't meet him obviously at Fender because he left. You know, I started at uh, I started at Gibson '78, uh-huh. and he had already you know, he was gone like eleven years by then. I didn't actually meet him till a NAMM show in the 90s. Okay. Um, uh, he's got a really dry sense of humor, which I mean, I mean, we basically talked for an hour and a half. So that was just, you know, one of the coolest hour days. Was, you know, was at somebody else's booth and uh, we just yacked. So that was really, really cool. For me, one of the, um, the neat things is that, you know, when I was at Gibson, one of the first big projects I had was on Seth's first humbucking pickup. You know, at that point I was, correcting what is i don't know if you guys use the same term spec drift which is where you design something okay and it's supposed to pretty much stay the same and then it doesn't but nobody's really noticing that it didn't mm-hmm. you know so by the time we get to t-top humbuckers at gibson for instance they don't sound at all like what seth designed there's a whole lot of differences to that and part of my challenge there was kind of figuring out what seth did and bringing it back um, so that's Seth's first humbucker. The wide range, to the best of my knowledge, is his last one. Okay. You know, so the fact that I was actually able to bookend the beginning and the end of his career was incredibly special to me. You know, and uh, I have tremendous respect for you know what some folks can refer to as the old guys. Um, I met a lot of them. You know, when I worked at Gibson met a lot of them later on after you know towards the end of their careers and um they're just fascinating people they're just really really interesting folks to talk to so um this has been a once in a lifetime thing for me to basically have this material and kind of have this trust so to speak um you know from him in the sense of saying okay you know here it is what are you going to do with it better be good amazing amazing 
Tim, thank you so much for speaking with me today. It's, uh, it's a fascinating story. And yeah, the new range is super exciting as well. So congratulations. And thank you for speaking on the Guitar Speak podcast today. Oh, my pleasure, Matt. It was a pleasure to be with you. And um, you take care. Be well. All right. There you go. Tim Shaw on the podcast. I love that conversation. So fascinating. And Tim, uh, such an engaging guest. So that was really cool. Hope you enjoyed it too. My thanks to Jack at Fender Australia who helped organize the interview. Thanks also to Fretboard Biology, longtime sponsors of the show. Please check out their links in the show notes. And I couldn't leave without leaving you with some words of wisdom. And I like to draw on those from Michael Schenker, who way back in episode number 150 told all of us to... Keep rocking, keep on rocking. Keep on rocking, indeed. All right, I'll catch you next time. Bye now.